We have been taking our time with this verse. And need, needfully so, there, every major part of verse 18 specifically has been really misunderstood throughout the ages. We've misunderstood who the rock is, what the church is, and now we're going to zero in this morning on what hell is, as referred to at, in the scripture. And by the end of our time today, we're finally going to be able to wrap our minds fully around everything that verse 18 tells us. Jesus has already boldly declared that he will build his church, his assembly of God's people, on the foundation that we saw earlier in this paragraph, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the the one to take away the sins of the earth. And he concludes this verse by saying, The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And if you're anything like me, the, the immediate image that co- we conjure up is this picture of the church defending itself from this satanic onslaught launched from the pits of hell. But the church hung on and endured through the night and it endures to live another day. I mean, that was what first thing that I read when I first read this passage as a new believer. I imagine the same for many of us today. So you could imagine how surprised I was to ponder this verse later on and realize, wait a minute, that's not what this verse says. It's very different than that. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar to realize something is wrong with that image because of the use of the word gates. Are gates used to attack or defend with? I mean, if you are a part of an invading army and you're marching towards your opponent carrying gates, you're not going to have a successful invasion. That, it doesn't work that way. Uh, rather, rather, the gates are used to defend a city. Gates are the entryway to a city, the last line of defense before a city is taken. The church is pictured as on the offensive here. Not defending through the night from a satanic attack, but on the offense against the gates of hell, if you will. So hold on to that image. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But the church is pictured here as on the offensive, not defensive here. However, the, the second thing wrong with that initial interpretation, that first thing that comes to mind, is that Satan is actually not ruling or launching attacks from hell. In fact, there's actually zero Bible verses that picture it that way. Rather, when you read Job chapter 1, Satan is going to and fro throughout the earth. And 1 Peter 5.8 says that he is seeking someone to devour. Satan's very much in the world in a spiritual sense. He is not actually ruling and reigning in hell. In fact, one day, according to Revelation 20 verse 10, it says that in this future, that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where, he, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So no, Satan is not actually ruling in hell. He's going to be punished and tormented himself in hell. So we need to get this picture out of our minds. That's not actually the way the Bible describes the enemy of your souls. Which brings me to the third error 
that this verse isn't speaking about hell the way you and I would speak about the word hell today. And this is where you, being a good Bible student, would say, now wait a minute, Sean, you might, be, you might have done that whole studying theology thing, but I can read plain English. The word here says hell. So I get that. And I must confess, I am very confused why the ESV, an otherwise wonderful translation, would put the word hell in this text. Because that's not the word that was originally written here. Every other solid modern translation that's worth its salt uses the word Hades here. Hades, which is the generic word for the grave or the abode of the dead. It corresponds to the Hebrew word sheol, which you will find in the Old Testament. These are generic, interchangeable terms that describe the grave or death. That's what's being referred to here in this passage. See, look, there is another word that the New Testament writers use to describe the place of everlasting suffering for those who reject God's plan of salvation. And that word is Gehenna, Gehenna in the original uh, writings. And sometimes you'll see a footnote in your Bibles that say, oh, the Greek word is Hades, the Greek word is Gehenna, the the Hebrew word is Sheol. And those actually do make a difference. And in my personal Bible, it actually has that footnote. I'm I'm surprised the, the ones in the pews, the pew Bibles don't, but that is what it is. And... This word Gehenna corresponds to what we think of the word hell. Now, Jesus knew this word. He could have used this word here. In fact, 11 other times in the Gospels and a few times already in the Gospel of Matthew, he does. But he doesn't here. So that tells me there's a reason why. Because instead of using the word for the final place of judgment, after the final judgment, he uses the word Hades, or the grave, where, according to Luke 16, the righteous, upon coming to the grave, immediately go into God's presence. And those who have rejected God's place, God's plan of salvation go to a place of torment before the final judgment. Kind of like how criminals will be sentenced first to the county jail before they receive their full punishment at the federal prison. That's kind of what's going on here. Neither one is pleasant, but one is worse and permanent. The same is what's going on here. And that's how we can make sense of verses like Revelation 20, verse 14, that says that then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. So so in short, to put it all together for us so we get the whole picture In short, the righteous, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have been justified by faith, by believing the good news of the gospel. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us that once you are absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. But the unrighteous, those who have rejected God's plan of salvation, are tormented now and kept for future judgment, as 2 Peter 2.9 says. Now, that's a lot to think about. (laughs) But there's one last question here that I want to unpack before we really dig into what this verse does say. If hell is a future event, 
How can Jesus have descended into hell, as our modern reading of the Apostles' Creed says? And we hear that every Sunday when we recite the Apostles' Creed. How do we make sense of that? Well, first of all, as, as biblical Christians, we don't accept creeds or denominations or anything as being authoritative unto themselves. We believe Scripture alone has authority to itself. But historically, the Christian churches have accepted the creeds as accurate summaries as to what the Bible says. Accurate summaries of what they say, kind of like how I hope that I'm giving accurate summaries as to what the Scriptures say. But my word isn't of itself authoritative. Just because I'm standing up here this morning doesn't mean that my word is authoritative unto itself. I'm only as accurate as I'm accurately telling you what the Bible says. And the creeds are the same way. And they're good summaries. That being said, though, Dr. Wayne Grudem, a very well-respected biblical scholar, everybody knows this guy's name in the academic communities, has a peer-reviewed scholarly argument that Jesus did not descend into hell the way that you and I as English-speaking you know, Christians would understand that phrase today. Here, he makes two crucial arguments for us to consider. I'm just going to briefly go over them. The first uh, objection is based on the creed itself because it appears that over time, the Apostles' Creed itself has changed over time. Because look, it it actually wasn't written by the Apostles. It's a misnomer to say that because the earliest version that we have dates back to 341 AD, which if you do the math, that's 300 years roughly after Christ. And we have, and so the earliest version we have is 341 AD, and there, I'm sure there were some versions before that. This is the earliest we have. And we have zero versions, zero, exactly zero versions containing the phrase, he descended into hell until 650 AD, another 300 years later. So n- nobody claimed at a creedal level that Jesus descended into hell for six, the first 600 years of Christian theology. Until then, it it just said, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead, with no mention of hell in there. Interesting. And interesting because it fits. It makes sense. It flows that way. But even those who have accepted the phrase didn't accept the meaning of the phrase as you and I would say it today. Let me, let me explain what I mean. The, the Westminster Longer Catechism, which was written way after all of this, goes out of its way to define how they viewed what hell is in, in, in regards to the creed, where they said that Jesus was in hell, defining it as under the power of death until the third day. Under the power of death until the third day. Now, that's a radically different understanding of hell than you and I would understand that phrase. But lo and behold, that's exactly what the word Hades means. That's exactly the understanding we would expect from the text that we just read, as properly understood and translated. Now, I get it. I know I'm getting I'm more technical than usual this morning. 
But my point is that when Jesus said that every jot and tittle of the word, every stroke of the pen was important to God's word, he meant it. And there's implication for every comma found in the scriptures. And we're seeing how a misunderstanding of even one word can lead to a confusion for, for many years as to what these phrases refer to or when the Bible is referring to the grave and when the Bible is referring to hell, respectively. But we could simplify this whole understanding with just one Bible verse without me getting all technical. In fact, Jesus told us exactly where he was going to go after he died on the cross. He gave us one verse in Luke 23, 43 speaking to the thief on the cross, saying exactly where they were both about to go. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Heaven. He said exactly where he was going to go. I couldn't imagine it being very comforting if he said to that thief, today you will be with me in hell. Something tells me that phrase wouldn't be remembered so belovedly if that's what he said. But doesn't that make so much more sense out of that passage? Now, if if this phrase refers to uh, the grave and that phrase refers to paradise where they're going to, it makes sense. It's a cohesive, coherent narrative. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So tying this all together, I would argue, as Dr. Grudem does go on to do, that the church as a whole would be better off and teach more clearly and be more orthodox if we took that line out of the Apostles' Creed and just said he rose again on the third day or he was buried and rose again on the third day. That would be more accurate. And in the meantime, though, and maybe maybe we'll do that someday, who knows for sure, but in the meantime, you know, I just conveniently sip my water for that phrase. Some of you guys have caught me doing it. (laughs) But if you're going to keep saying it, you know, I am not going to be contentious about that. Uh, I would just say, say it with the same understanding and convictions that the Westminster Confessions rendered that term, understanding it to be Hades, understanding it to be Jesus was under the power of death for three days which is kind of what the next phrase says, but I digress. So my hope is by taking the time to really unpack all of that, that as we're clarifying these topics, things are starting to fit better together in our minds as we consider the overall narrative of what happened to Jesus, what ha- what's going to happen to us, what happens to our loved ones when we pass away someday. And we can better understand especially the main thrust of what this verse is getting at in verse 18. That the church is not defending, it's attacking. Satan is not ruling in hell, he will one day be punished in hell. And Jesus did not descend into hell, but into Hades, the grave, for three days. But he didn't stay there. He rose victorious over that grave three days later, declaring victory over sin and death. So to put this together, Jesus 
being the Messiah, he's going to build his church on that foundational stone that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And death itself will be conquered through the church in a sense as it marches, marches forward with this message that Jesus has conquered the grave. That is great news. That was the whole point of our first reading. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? In that same chapter, a few verses before, in verse 26, it says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So let me, let me take a different route on this. One of my greatest privileges as a pastor is officiating a Christian funeral or memorial service. It is one of my it is a sacred duty that I so thoroughly enjoy doing in a good way. Because when, when I officiate for someone who was not known to be a Christian, there's a very different tone in the atmosphere, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's this sense of finality, isn't there? And, and there's, hope is still there, of course, we don't know what happens in the last couple of moments of somebody's life, much less hours or however much time that there was. You don't know what's happening. But amongst the people, there's a feeling of loss and sadness. And of course, there's tears and sadness at a Christian's funeral too. That's certainly the case. But there is no sense of finality and I get the joy and the privilege to be able to tell people that there's a way to see your beloved again. That this is not the end of their story or yours together. Because Jesus has conquered the grave. And if we believe the same gospel that, in that case, the deceased did, that that Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're only mourning for a temporary separation, not an eternal one, when our loved ones go home to be with the Lord. I mean, some of you guys said goodbye to your loved ones this morning on your way to church. Or will tomorrow when you go to work or when you go to school. You don't cry at those. It's a, in the same way, it's a, it's a, uh, I'll see you later tonight. There's a slightly longer hyphen in between it when it comes to death. But it highlights that there's only a temporary separation. I hope this is making sense. That's the joy that we have as Christians. Because look, as a church community here, speaking of all of us here, we've had our fair share of funerals. Feels like too many sometimes. And we, we can look around this room and we remember where people, loved ones and friends and family members used to sit. And we still tear up sometimes because we miss them. But we don't cry for them. We don't tear up for them. We tear up because we miss them. But... It's our loss, not theirs. They are in glory. They have more peace than you and I have ever experienced. Because all that the cancer did 
All that the accident did, all that whatever it was did, was transport them out of this world with its pain and its sufferings and into glory and into the arms of Jesus. That's all that, that's all that death has been reduced to as Christians. That is the victory that Jesus is saying his church has over Hades, over the grave, over death. The gates of Hades indeed will not prevail. They have been reduced to dust compared to the power of Jesus Christ and his complete and total victory over sin and death. That is the good news this morning. And the the, the wonderful hope that we have is that the gospel continues to save people from the powers of sin and death every day. I had the privilege of seeing a good friend of mine's daughter come to uh, just give, give her life to the Lord just a couple of weeks ago. And glory to God for that. And she, um, she's one of many in her generation who are rejecting these lies that have been spoon-fed to her ever since her youth about who she is, what her identity is. And she's embraced her God-given identity as a child of God and Grateful, so grateful for what God is doing in her life. And God continues to do that for so many today all over the world. Guys, don't let the popular headlines fool you. God is not done yet bringing people from darkness to light. Because look, even some of the most closed off countries in the world, places where Christians are actively being persecuted, Places that are most hostile towards the gospel, those are also some of the fastest growing churches in the world today. We have great hope for that, for what God is doing in those areas. And what's fascinating is that the threat of death isn't stopping them because the gates of Hades have not prevailed. You can't intimidate a missionary with into silence with death threats if death itself has lost its sting. Glory to God. So now that it's been said out loud, we're beginning to understand why we cannot view ourselves as defensive as the church regarding our place. You know, just barely hanging on, fighting off the gates of hell as as if, you know, this is some kind of spiritual Alamo or Custer's last stand or something like that. No, Jesus' victory over sin and death is far too complete for us to view ourselves as on the losing side. But yet I get it, guys. Look, I, I turn on the news sometimes too. <laughs> I know how crazy things are in our world today. I know it's getting dark out there. But let's be reminded that light appears even more piercing in dark places, doesn't it? I mean, let me show you what I mean. This light's not doing all that much in a bright room like this today, is it? I mean, none of you can read your Bibles more clearly that this is out, right? Clearly not. But come back in 12 hours and let's turn these lights off. Let me tell you, even this little light... Shines pretty bright when it gets dark out. And in a dark room like this, I just turn this on and I can see what's going on in the balcony. I can see all throughout the room. It gets bright with just this tiny little light 
I got much stronger flashlights than that. And my prayer is that as this world gets darker, as things get crazier out there in this world, it's, look, I'm not naive, I see what you guys see. That we would stop being embarrassed of the light God has given us. That we would take the light God has given us, take it out from under the bushel that we have hidden it in, and put it on display for the world to see the light it so desperately needs through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have cannot be concealed. It ought not be. The the victory Jesus has given over the worst that death and and sin has, it, it cannot be understated how important it is to reach this world and give them what they need. The hope of Jesus Christ. Look, people are waking up to how crazy and lost our culture has become. And many young people especially are questioning everything in this world. Seeking truth in this world surrounded by lies. Is the church going to give them the answers they're looking for? Is the, truth gonna supp- is the church going to supply the truth that people seek? Are we going to keep that good news just to ourselves? Will we seek to advance the kingdom in the offensive stance, or will we hide defensively? Especially now, we must embrace how Jesus described his church as on the offense against the power of death by proclaiming his message that Jesus already has that victory. And we do that every time. Every time, advancing the kingdom, every time we do something as simple as inviting a friend to church, inviting a friend or a family member here here or to an outreach we might have or participating in one that we do in the future. It happens every time we just set up a table out on Broadway for an event. It happens when you invite uh, one of uh, the neighborhood kids in your area to the community VBS we're doing this year. All of that, every little thing that we do advances the kingdom of God. What is your part? How can you shine your light? Thanks be to God.